1: Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed in their careers. All right, today's episode is being recorded in Phoenix, Arizona, where I am attending the Society of American Military Engineers, also known as SAMI's Joint Engineer Training Conference. It's something that I have heard about this conference for a long time. My partner, Christian, has been a long-time SAME member. And I'm super excited about being out here. I was asked to come out here by Sammy and conduct a bunch of interviews with some very successful engineers and other professionals in the industry. And you're going to hear four of those interviews in this episode. And I'll I'll give you a brief overview of them in a moment. But I do want to just tell you about the Society of American Military Engineers if you're not familiar with them. The Society of American Military Engineers leads collaborative efforts to identify and resolve national security infrastructure-related challenges. Again, this is a professional association that both engineers and non-engineers join, and they could be in the military or they may not be in the military. SAMI was founded in 1920, and they really unite public and private sector individuals and organizations from across the architecture, engineering, construction, environmental, facility management, cybersecurity, project planning, contract and acquisition, and other related disciplines in support of national security. They have 105 posts and more than 50 student chapters and field chapters around the world, as well as a headquarters staff. And Christian and I, with the help, of course, of Betty, put on a conference or helped to run their student conference in North Carolina this winter, which we really enjoyed We've gotten to know Mark there, who's, who works in membership, and we've had some good partnerships and ideas, so we appreciate the opportunity to be in Phoenix, and I think you're really going to enjoy these interviews. Before we dive into the interviews here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for the show, PPI. <laughs> If you're thinking about taking the civil FE or PE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI, the leader in civil engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code civil at ppitopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com. And use the promo code civil for a 20% discount. I also want to mention that we run a community for engineers online for career support and guidance as well as personal development. It is known as The Engineering Mastermind, which you can find at theengineeringmastermind.com. We just created a forum, a very detailed forum. We have calls, support calls for you in your career and we also just created like an ancillary Facebook group private Facebook group. So now we have, which is more of a short-term message board, so to speak, and then we have our deeper forum associated with it. So we've really got to know some very talented engineers and I recommend that you check it out. It also helps to support the podcast, of course. All right. So you're about to hear four interviews from me on the floor at the conference. The first one is Adam Hughes. Adam is a civil engineer at the U.S. Public Health Service. This is a branch of the military that I never heard of. And he focuses on bringing clean water or ensuring that Indian reservations and communities have clean water. Really, really interesting. Adam gets into how this is done. And again, as a civil engineer, I really appreciated this and enjoyed it. The second interview is Chris Prasad. He's the president of Kenaw Consulting in Houston. I had the chance to sit next to Chris at lunch and learned about how he's growing a small company, but it was not until I actually interviewed him for the podcast that I found out that not too long ago, he was a cab driver and now he's the president of an engineering company. So it was interesting to hear a little bit about that journey. I also interviewed Carrie Ann Williams and Mindy Hinsley, who gave a great session talking about marketing for engineering firms. And we sat down and we talked about the relationship between civil engineers and their marketing departments or their marketing team or marketing professionals in their firm. It's always an interesting relationship and an interesting back and forth give and take between engineering and marketing. And I thought that they gave some really valuable information around that in this interview. I think you'll enjoy. And last but certainly not least, I interviewed one of the keynote speakers, Dan McNichol. Dan was on the Civil Engineering Podcast just a few episodes ago, episode 30, where he talked about his journey for six months driving across the United States in a 1949 Hudson. And it's an amazing mission. He's really trying to show people that our infrastructure is crumbling, and that's why he used the 1949 Hudson as an analogy. And at the end of this episode, the last interview, you'll hear me actually sitting in the 1949 Hudson with Dan. Talking not about exactly what he talked about in the last episode, but just talking about when you have such a strong professional mission and goal like he has, how you're able to stay focused on it and also live your life, like the personal side of your life. Dan basically left for six months from his hometown to do this trip. So it was a trying trip, but it was a very successful one. And so I chatted with him a little bit about that. And lastly, I just want to say it was really a thrill to talk to so many engineers in the military. As a civil engineer, I know just like you that there are challenges on every site you go to and every project you work on, but you can't imagine some of the challenges that these engineers deal with in the military, in the field, on sites that are essentially life-threatening in many ways. So it was just humbling to be there right before Memorial Day and be around all this, and I appreciate the opportunity to be there And with that, let's jump right into the first interview. Civil Engineering Podcast.
0: Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: All right, so Anthony Fasano here from the Engineering Career Coach. We're still here at the Sammy Jetsy Conference in Phoenix. And I'm here with Adam Hughes, who I'll introduce here. Let him introduce himself in a minute, but we're sitting inside of a 1949 Hudson. (laughs) That's Dan McNichols' car, who was the keynote speaker, um, who we interviewed previous to the conference, who drove this car all over the U.S. to send a message out about our crumbling infrastructure. But that being said, why don't you just introduce yourself? Thanks. Uh, again, my name is Adam Hughes. I'm an
2: officer with the U.S. Public Health Service. I'm a civil engineer by training, and I work for a federal agency right now that's called the Indian Health Service, which is charged with providing direct health care on uh, on Indian lands and in the Indian health hospital system. And, uh, and part of what, the, what we as engineers do is provide preventative health care in the form of water and sewer infrastructure, clean running water in the home.
1: Wow, that sounds really interesting. Being a civil engineer myself, it sounds like it's a, quite a challenge, but also really important work. So just for time frame, how long have you been practicing? I've been practicing engineer for about 12 years now. 12 years, and tell us about your career a little bit. It sounds like you've traveled a bit for your job. You We talked a little bit about you going to Alaska. I guess you've traveled to some of the areas where, I guess, where the Indians are.
2: Yeah, exactly. So while I was in school uh, getting my engineering degree, I had a friend that, that had an internship with the Indian Health Service uh, doing exactly what I do now, and he, he enjoyed his experience so much. He he just raved about it and convinced me uh, after I was out of school to check into it as a career option. And as, as soon as I got out of school, I put in my application. I actually uh, applied to the uniform service side, so to the public U.S. Public Health Service, became commissioned, and was assigned to the Indian Health Service federal agency. And my first assignment was on the Navajo Indian Reservation in a little town called Tuba City. And I lived there for about four and a half years. It was an outstanding opportunity as I, I had a lot of autonomy as an engineer uh, working with Indian Health Service there and in a remote location, but uh, got, we, was responsible for completion of a project from beginning to the end. And I could speak more up to that, but... Uh,
1: well, I think one question I have for you is, I would imagine that this isn't something that you probably could foresee as a civil engineer, like doing this type of work, but I'm just wondering, like, now that you've been doing it for a while, is it something that you enjoy?
2: Oh, yeah, Definitely. I've never looked back. The opportunity to running water into people's homes is very rewarding. And yeah, I've, I've never regretted the decision.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's that's one of the I think one of the cool things about being a civil engineer is, well, I mean, all engineers. But I know speaking as a civil myself is that you can really have an impact to the, people's lives, of course, which Adam has had in his work. Adam, talk to us a little bit about your career. You're obviously involved with SAMI. How has being involved in an association like this helped you? Sammy has been great. You know, the main benefit,
2: as you mentioned, I've been stationed in some, some remote locations up in Alaska on the Navajo Reservation in different parts of the state of Arizona. So I, I don't always have the direct benefit of being close to a, a SAMI post. And, uh, and just receiving the magazine every month from SAMI helps me stay current on uh, what other engineers are doing, the, ver- the wide variety. There's such a wide variety of things that civil engineers Uh, end up doing. There's so many doors open to a new graduate and receiving the the military engineer every month in the mail allows me to see all the different varied ways that engineers uh, serve the public.
1: That's great. And what maybe are some of the challenges that you face in your job? I would imagine there are certainly challenges in what you do. Maybe you could talk about that.
2: I think the greatest challenge is communicating and collaborating with people. And that's something that is not emphasized enough in engineering school is the non-technical portion of the job. 80% of the job is communicating with other people. Either communicating your ideas in writing through written reports, or, or the verbal communication side of it, or learning how to form collaborative relationships, partnerships with a wide variety of different groups, whether it's uh, regulators with the federal government, or whether it's a tribal water operator. Learning to f- form those strong relationships.
1: That's a great point. I mean, I think if you're a civil engineer, really an engineer of any kind, you're going to need to be able to communicate to get your message out to people. It's not just about being able to crunch the numbers. You've got to take the next step. If you want to make change, that's a really big, big part of being a successful civil engineer is that communication aspect. Adam, how about education as far as, I would imagine that as part of your job is, a, is educating people that you're trying to help.
2: That is true. And a portion of that is educating, for example, uh, we've, you know, I mentioned that I, we work with the tribes here in the United States right. and helping educate the tribes in terms of to see the full potential for you know, what their water and sewer infrastructure could look like and uh, helping to educate them in terms of how they could better operate their systems or better uh, manage their systems to provide a better end product to their customers
1: are they pretty much open to your help? Is there like resistance
2: or? Oh, no, no. The, the, all the tribes I've worked with have been outstanding. The, the education portion of it is is simply taking people who may not be utility managers by trade and helping helping bring them along to see the importance of, of clean running water and sewer in the home and um, and helping them learn their own systems and how to operate them.
1: Also, just for point of reference for the listeners, as far as your position, how big is your team? What does that look like on a day-to-day as far as the number of people you work with? Oh, good question. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm actually in Tucson, Arizona now, and I supervise
2: a team of about 14 uh, engineers, drafters, construction inspectors, and, uh, and civil engineering technicians. So we, we, we work with two tribes right now uh, in southern Arizona, and we're a more or less one-stop shop where the, the tribe can access our services. We, we act as consulting engineers, and also as a funding agency for their infrastructure.
1: How has that been for you as a, you know, still a young engineer having to oversee a staff of that size? I mean, I'm sure it's there's some challenges, but how have you been how have you dealt with that?
2: Well, I just stepped up into the role of manager about a year ago, and it definitely is a different dynamic than being a design engineer or a project manager. I'm ne- just now completing a master's degree in engineering management from the University of Idaho. It's been all completely online. But it's been outstanding, actually, a lot of coursework in uh, leadership and management and leadership. I've really enjoyed it, and it's helped to expand my understanding of what a manager and leader does. And it is a little bit different of a hat to wear, but it's actually very rewarding, and I would encourage all engineers to gain. That's another thing that's only lightly touched upon in undergraduate school, but I would encourage engineers to, just like the communication skills, to go out and seek opportunities to gain managerial and leadership abilities.
1: Great. And just last question, as we wrap up here, you've been managing now for a little while. It sounds like the degree is going to be helpful for you, the additional degree, the engineering manager degree, which is great to know. Is there any other, like, pieces of advice or some words of encouragement or something that you could say for an engineer who is looking to get into management. They're going to have to make a transition. Is there anything that stood out for you that either helped you, whether it was like mentors, books, anything that, that you found helpful in getting into management?
2: For someone who's interested in management, obviously, one is the, is technical capability. So first would be developing their, their technical capabilities. Right. But then second really goes back to the ability to communicate and I think that for someone who would aspire to be a manager, it would be to develop communication skills, verbal and written communication skills. And then as, an, as a new manager, it all comes back to finding your own management style mm-hmm. and gaining awareness of your own limitations and your own preconceptions. And I've recently undergone a, like a personality type assessment and what they call a 365. Oh, yeah, sure. I, I can't remember the name of the, exactly what it's called now, but it's a You internalize all of this to try and understand how you see the world and how others see the world and how you should interact with others. You know, we don't all see uh, a problem the same way. And it's not that one way is right or one way is wrong. It's more of trying to understand each other so that we can effectively communicate and and work with teams of people.
1: Great. Adam Hughes, giving us some great words of advice. Adam, thanks for taking some time here today and wish you all the best. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. All right, I'm here with Chris Prasad, who I met here at the SME conference. His company is Kenall. He's the
3: president of the company in Houston, Texas. Chris, tell us first about your company and what you do. We are a small farm, about thirty-one people. We opened the farm in two thousand two. Year two thousand two, we started a two people farm. Now it's grown to thirty-one people. It's a eight-year farm, and a woman-owned farm, and. uh, we're glad to be part of SME here, and, uh, you know, we do work with uh, DODs, and with uh, a lot of DODs includes uh, Fort Worth District, uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, NAFAC Southeast, NAFAX Southwest, and we do a couple of works in San Antonio, too.
1: So you're the president of the company. So talk to me about your job. What is your job as the president?
3: My job as the president is to, you know, do Part of it is to do business development and uh, go around and, uh, you know, to conventions, meet people, talk to people, meet the folks we have met before, develop the relationship, keep going, and pass the existing knowledge to our subordinates so they can keep continuing to do the same. So this one doesn't stop with me, it has to be passed on. Right,
1: so you have to pass it on to your staff, and how do you do that? Give me some examples of how you help your staff
3: grow. As soon as I go, we do have a staff meeting every time. Uh, this is a special staff meeting, actually. Every time we go to convention, we spread out and we tell what all we did and give the names and all the small briefings about what we did. It's a one-page document whom we met, whom the other people, old folks we met, and we pass it on. And next time, we take them to next convention and we keep on going that way. So when. I retire or somebody retired. It just knowledge passes on. That's great. I've never I've never
1: actually heard that, but so your company has a very formal process for going to the conferences to maximize it. So you come back, you have a write-up, a debriefing kind of, and you, you have a meeting with your with your staff and you go over that and then pass the knowledge on to them. That's great. Tell me about I know from when we spoke yesterday you're expanding. Your company's growing, you got contracts, you gotta have more engineers. When you try to find
3: staff, what do you look for in engineers? You know, usually we we try to because I nobody gave a break for me. It took a long time for me to find a job because I didn't have any past experience. So I had to work as a, you know, part-time as a cab driver or in a restaurant until somebody gave me a break. They gave me a break, so thank you. So I don't want anybody to go through me like me, but I want to give a chance to, if, they, if I find them very... Interesting, and if they are fit to for the job, I do hire them, even though they don't have any experience. I look at their present skills in what they did in the school and everything. If I find them potential, I do hire them.
1: So, Chris, you went from cab driver to president. <laughs> so, how did that happen? Like, what are some of your skills? What did you do to get
3: there? Well, you know, remember, cabby is becoming a, a like a, it's a you are the owner of the cab. Basically, you are an ambassador to the city. I was in Chicago, so every time they give a license, that's what they used to mention. You're an ambassador to the city, behave like that. Talk like that, you know? So you should behave like that. So that's what I had in mind. So when I after working for eight years, I had in my mind that I have the skill set because I was managing that firm. The whole firm, it was a six million dollar firm, I was managing it alone. If they help a little bit help, true. So I thought I could do it. So that's when I got out and I did it and it's been you know it's been a good thing what happened to us that's great i think that's great for the listeners to hear because sometimes you
1: think you may have a job that doesn't is not related to engineering but what you learn in that job can help you to be an engineer because it helped chris become the president of his company that's now a growing company in texas they're doing great so chris last question if you met an engineer let's say at the conference you only had a minute or two with them a couple of key pieces
3: of advice for their career Keep working what you're doing here. You got the best job. Your, your career will be great. Don't worry. Just be aggressive. Keep working. Keep pushing forward. Great.
1: Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you, All right. So we're here at the SAMI conference out in Phoenix. And I have here with me Mindy and Carrie Ann, who just did a session on marketing. And so we're going to talk a little bit about marketing in the engineering world. I'm going to ask them just to introduce themselves. Carrie Ann.
4: Sure. I'm Carrie Ann Williams. I'm the principal of Andana Consulting, which is a a boutique marketing agency focused just on the AEC industry. We mostly work with clients in proposal development and communication strategy.
1: Awesome. Mindy?
4: Hi, I'm Mindy Hinesley. I
5: divide my time as chief marketing officer of Ari Environmental. A women-owned industrial hygiene firm and also my own consulting business, Hinesley Collective, LLC, and I help small businesses enter the federal marketplace.
1: Awesome. So you just gave a session on marketing, and I know that that could be a challenge for engineers and engineering companies. I could say that because I am an engineer. So... I don't want you to recap your whole talk, but maybe we could just go through some of the strategies or you know just in general marketing. What are you seeing out there? Where do you see that companies or engineers can really improve on that on the on the marketing side of things?
5: Well one thing that became really obvious during our session today is that small businesses and even mid-size and large businesses are really embracing marketing as a whole. And we talked about research and strategy proposal development, business development, and corporate communications, tying all of that together. And I think that we struck a chord that people know they have to do more, they have to embrace it, they have to make smart decisions, and they do that by conducting research, understanding the marketplace, and then developing a strategy and plan for it and then executing
4: And it's not enough just to respond to a proposal that comes out through FedBizOps or any other service that you, know, you have to have some other layers in place to help support all that energy that you put out in a proposal.
1: Yeah, it's a good point because I, I think you're right. I think that the traditional kind of approach is look for the RFPs and just go through the process, submit them, get them in. There was a couple people in your session that said, you know, we're having trouble just keeping up with it mm-hmm. with this cycle. But I think if you want to market effectively, you've got a there's a lot of things that have to be done, That's which right. is where I think it can get well, one difficult for small businesses like you said because they don't have necessarily all that staff, which I guess is challenging because you have to get to a point where you have to either have help mm-hmm. with you know people like yourselves or you need to either have enough people in your company that can focus on that. Otherwise, it becomes a very difficult thing and you're kind of doing a lot of work. These proposals are a lot of work.
5: Oh yeah, oh, definitely.
1: <laughs> a lot of man hours, a lot of work, and if you're not getting them, it's a problem. So I definitely think that I see that as a struggle. How could you recommend that someone can take a kind of a blended approach? What can they do to try to cover all these different aspects of proposals?
5: Right, one thing we did talk about today was the need to create a culture in the firm where business development marketing is vital and everybody plays a part in it and uh, you know the seller doer model is obviously a hot topic right now and and, um, we're also dealing with less resources but more work
4: and so finding that balance is really tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah and we also talked about um, creating a proposal approach that aligns with your business strategy so that you're not just throwing stuff out because you can do the work, but that it aligns with what your business is targeting, your growth patterns, the sectors that you want to be in, and that your proposal process is in line with a go-no-go form that helps you make the decision to go after that proposal so that you're not wasting time chasing everything, but that you are very methodical in the way that you're approaching it so your team isn't overextended, or they're rarely overextended, so that you're getting more out of what you're doing. So your hit rates are improving because you're submitting less, but they're higher quality.
1: I think that's an excellent point. And how do you, you know, if someone's in that position to make that decision, is it, so you're basing it, I mean, on your expertise, obviously, but is there any, like, what were some, what might they ask themselves, so, like...
5: A lot of it can be based on historical data, what your term or your firm has gone after in the past okay. and where they've been successful or what their teaming partners have been doing and maybe they're coming on board to enter a new service line or market sector. But I think a lot of it has to do with just researching and understanding the market in which they operate but also ha- building those relationships so people are aware of your firm and what your strategies are and your niche Kind of engineering expertise or architectural expertise you have to align so many things now i can't like Karen said, it can't just be submitting because you can do the work, but truly understanding the marketplace, understanding the key players, getting your message out, positioning yourself in that marketplace and, and you know, brand consistency and moving forward on those terms. Yeah.
1: There's so many talking... no, there's so many levels. You're right. That's the thing that makes this so interesting mm-hmm. to me is that when you do engineering, you know, because I, I worked for an engineering company for a long time, you're not thinking in all those dimensions. Right. You know what I mean? You're thinking of get a project do a project, finish a project, move on to the next project. So all of a sudden, like, all these terms that Mindy just mentioned, I'm like, my head is spinning around. Like, I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm just one engineer. So I would imagine that it's extremely overwhelming. I know it's overwhelming. Um, and I think some of these points can be very helpful. But I think that one point about not chasing everything is a really important thing today because I know that these proposals cost firms a lot of time and a lot of money. And if you can stop wasting any effort on them, and put more energy into the ones that matter, then, you're, like you said, your hit rate could go up quite a bit. Yeah,
4: and it, two things on that. One is an example we gave today a couple times is years ago, the Army Corps district in Baltimore had an IDIQ, and mid-sized firms would go after it, they'd issue five contracts, and they'd have 20 proposals received and five contracts awarded. And then when it came out again after the recession and after BRAC was over and everything, 115 firms submitted on the exact same contract for again, five awards. And so how do you rise to the top and how do you make that compelling, but how do you also know that you're competing against 115 firms and if you just think you can do the work because you did it once, or you had a similar contract eight years ago, that's not really gonna make the cut. So those sort of thoughts going into the approach to a proposal really help make those decisions. And they're tough decisions because no one wants to say no when you're sitting there and you're like, well, we can do all this and Mm -hmm. look at that revenue for the next five years. But if you can say no, and then you're not wasting 45 hours of of everyone's time Mm -hmm. putting this together, but then you find one that is more aligned with what you can do, that you've got the relationships in place to go after. And the second thing I wanted to bring up that you reminded me of is that engineers get a project they do a project they find a new project and one of the things in marketing that we didn't really talk about today but that really really help you elevate your proposal and elevate your qualifications is to tell that story how did you solve that problem how did you come up with the solution Mm -hmm. because as an engineer that's your job your job is to say we need to do this thing oh, we can do it these five ways, this is the best one, this is most cost-effective, and all mm-hmm. that. But at the end of the day, you tell me, you're a marketing person, oh, well, we just did the thing, you know, it's done, yeah. and it, you know, it came in under budget. Right. And so, if you sit with me and we talk about it, and you start telling me, oh, yeah, well, this came up, and then the guy said we wanted to do this, and then we added mm-hmm. solar because mm-hmm. that did this thing. And so, suddenly, I've got a whole story to tell about a project that is really compelling to the client that we can throw into the proposal that when they're looking at it and they see that five other firms have done the exact same work, but they see our approach and they see our way of problem solving or the different methods that we use to get there that seem just so innate to an engineer that really tell the marketing story. So being able to work collaboratively with the technical staff and the marketing staff to build all those nuances into mm-hmm. the messaging because that's something that really gets missed if you write a project approach based on your scope, Right, you're missing all that. And the client really gets a
5: sense of who they're going to be working right. with. This is how they execute their projects and how they solve problems on the fly. Because, you know, to read, we built a 96,000-square-foot, four-story um, masonry-built Warehouse, like who cares? I and, you know, that's great and right, that's a fantastic and, like, a project, but yeah. does it really tell how you're going to engage with this company and how you're going to work with them? So, yeah, I find it far more fascinating if I had to review 115 proposals that some that would stand out to me more than anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. yeah that's. I like that point too because I think sometimes. You know, there's could be friction between engineers, the engineering department, and the marketing department.
5: What? No, <laughs> no, that doesn't happen.
1: But I think what you just said, Carrie-Anne, is a good point as to how you can really work together. And that, like, you know, as the engineer, I can tell you what we did technically. And then maybe you can draw, like, the creative mm-hmm. story out of it that you can then communicate to the prospective clients. Because, so you know, they're probably going to want to wrap their head more around. I mean, yeah, they're going to want to know some of the statistical stuff. But if you can put it to them in a way, like you said, that's more engaging to them, that this is how this firm can really help me. I like their story. They're lined up with us. That's worth a lot.
4: That informs your proposal project descriptions, but it also goes into any communications piece. So, you know, if you read an article in ENR, it's very, it's definitely a project approach, but it's much different from what you would do, you know, it's in the proposal parameters. But that story is all still there and all those details and the nuances and, the interesting facts that would make it a newsworthy article Mm -hmm. are the same things that would go into a proposal. You just have to streamline it. So thinking about it in a bigger picture of how all that can be used in different ways throughout the firm through marketing efforts and proposals and business development. Because once you tell the story, then when you're in a client meeting, then you're thinking about it in a little bit different way as well. Be like, oh yeah, well, you know, we did do it this way. Mm-hmm. Instead of just, yes, we're an engineering firm and we do civil site structural right. landscape architecture. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the
5: marketing engineering friction. I yeah. just I find this fascinating. It has changed a lot in the years. Um, Engineers are billable. They're working on their projects. They are expected to be billable. Marketing is non-billable. We're the thorn in the side saying, hey, we really need your help. Right. But I want people to understand it's a it's a collaboration, a true collaboration, is the firms that truly work together on this level, they're going to win much more work. It's going to permeate all things they do. People are going to be excited about working winning projects and seeing where we can take things and growing. And I think more often than not, you know, I worked in a large engineering firm for 14 years and I really touted this idea of collaboration. You know, we will help you, right. but leadership and ownership have to... You know, shift the culture a little bit and let them know, hey, it's okay to give some non billable time to marketing efforts or yeah. business development efforts. And once they mandate that shift and we can work as, together as a team, we, we made huge inroads into different market sectors or offering, you know, different service offerings that we were able to enter just because we started to work together and it wasn't like, oh God, here comes Mindy from marketing, let me hide, you know, in my cubicle, maybe she won't see me or I'll act like I'm on the phone or, hey, we're here because we want to
1: win work and we want. Our firm to grow, and we want to. So, how did you really do showcase. that? Many tell us, give us like not examples, but um, just like if you remember, like what was it that worked there? What
5: I did was because a lot of times I think marketing has um, back in the day we would be like, hey, I need a project write up, or I need your resume updated. Right. Nobody's, they don't want to sit and do that. Engineers don't want; it. they're too busy. That's not their They went to school to design things and build things. They're not there to write. Like, <laughs> so what I did was line. I'd be like, I right. tell you what, can you give me 15 minutes? I just want to pick your brain. And I'm going to write it for you, but I just want to hear what you have to say. And people like to talk about what they're doing. And I found that engineers really like to talk about their craft. And it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And they're passionate about it. So I learned a lot about bridge scour early on (laughs) because uh, I had a tough bridge engineer. And I was like, hey, I don't understand what this means in the RFP. Can you just sit down and talk to me? And he drew pictures and, you know, Uh well-rounded. But, you know, we had the best relationship after that. And we were able to go on business development meetings together and go on client calls together and he really we had a great working relationship for a long time so it's just not so adversarial but knowing that we're working we're as passionate about our craft as you are about engineering and if we can just marry the two then we're gonna we're gonna do a lot of great things together
1: yeah it's good i mean i think the way to think of it is that it's like the marketing and engineering you put them together it can be extremely powerful if you can fit together you know like the right way kind of like a puzzle and like you're right. saying engineers tell us all this stuff about the project and then we can take it right. and kind of spin it for the clients so that they they can see like three-dimensional mm-hmm. like not just what you're doing but what we can right. be doing the story behind it so it's really good and i think also you touched on probably like one of the Fundamental problems in the engineering industry, which is probably a whole nother podcast episode, but is the whole idea of billability. <laughs> sure. It's a major problem. Every engineer that I mean, we run a community for engineers online, and always in our forum, it comes up is that you know I'm supposed to be 90 to 95 percent billable, and I but I want to try to get business. I want to start to do other things. And it's I mean, listen. The problem is, is that if you're not billable, we understand that the company's not quote unquote making money. But if you're not billable and you're doing things like we just talked about, like having a conversation mm-hmm. with Mindy that's going to help you win a million dollar contract then yeah you're not like directly billable in those 15 minutes but mm-hmm. it's going to come back to you in the long
5: run right we had a quote that we showed today from a Harvard university professor and he studies business and economics and he particularly looks at the AEC industry and he said your billable time is what earns your revenue for the year but your non-billable time is what poses you for growth in the future so i think i've never it's i came across it a couple weeks ago and i was like i want that that just speaks volumes, because it is true a lot of times, be like, hey, I need your help. No, I'm being billable. I'm I'm earning money for the company. And I'm like, all right, you know, I get it. I get it because, you know, engineers also, you have great respect for them, but they don't think in gray. Marketing is a lot of gray. So what I've found is um, giving true metrics and measurements to what we're doing and showing some return on things that we're doing speaks volumes. And I remember... The president of my old firm, I would go in and he was just a tried and true engineer. And I'm like, I need to have a conversation with you, but it has to be gray. It can't be black and white. I don't have a formula that's going to work out. So yeah. can we just talk gray? And um, it was funny. We had a great conversation. I was like, okay. So I found that that was the way I would approach him when I wanted to talk. Like big picture, like I don't know the definites of this yet, but this is where we're going. And um, so we finished our conversation and I said, oh, look at the new piece I just developed for our transportation marketing sector, the nice new graphic layout. And when I had graphic design in college, you know, we embraced white space. We didn't have to fill every little right. cranny and cranny. And I offset some things just for visual interest, right? Yeah. And I know this is foreign. But he said to me, he's like, no, no, no. When you lay out things, it has to be on a perfect grid. And he starts drawing me a grid, right, with all the pictures. So I was like, no, no, you just ruined all the work I just did <laughs> in the first 20 minutes of being in here. But we had a great respect for one of And we worked it all out, but... I think you really have to talk to people and how they're comfortable and get to know them as people and what makes them tick and learning how they work also and, and how they're most receptive to helping you and then helping them out.
1: Yeah, well, that's great. And that quote that you mentioned from Harvard.
5: I probably slaughtered it, but it, it's yeah, close. Well, I
1: yeah, well, I think that the companies that I think of now in the engineering industry that are growing fast We've had the chance to interview some of the CEOs on the podcast. I think they get that quote. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they get that some unbillable time that's used to grow your pipeline mm-hmm. is very valuable. Oh, sure. And I think the companies that don't get that are the ones that kind of hit, uh, they just top off and they can't get to the next mm-hmm. level and they can't figure it out.
4: I think it comes down to. It creating uh, brand ambassadors of your employees, creating that employee engagement so that they're not looking at their 40-hour work week, how are they going to be 90% billable and do some other work and still go home at 5 o'clock every day where they're a champion for their business, for their company, they want to move things forward, they're okay spending some personal time working on some non-billable work, whether it's coming to a conference or going to an event or calling somebody at the close of business just to say hey we haven't worked together in a while having them feel empowered and part of something so that they're continuously moving forward they're not just seen as i do this thing i'm the cad guy and this is what i'm going to do and then i'm going to go home and then i'm going to come in and do it again but they're really part of the whole they can see where they fit in the whole strategy of the company and how they're helping to move it forward so that Maybe they're not the one totally client-facing, but they're just helping to rewrite their resume or helping to provide some statistics on a proposal or taking project photos where they can see how what they're doing can impact the growth of the company so that it's not such a black-and-white deal of billable versus non-billable, but it's more integrated. An engaged employee is a happy employee, and a lot of it comes down to not necessarily monetary compensation or more time off, but just that feeling of being part of something bigger and helping the whole thing grow. Right. What and a it, great way to develop your leaders,
1: yeah, your firms, absolutely. to grow them. And they feel like they're part of the bigger picture mm-hmm. as opposed to just coming in, like you said, and either doing a drafting or doing a report or something like that. Which I think is critical to being engaged and to kind of plugging in. And listen, I mean I think like we're making it sound a little easy as far as like you should let your engineers not be as billable so they could do business development and it's not that easy because if you give an engineer 10 hours a week to go do non-billable stuff they may not be effective at all right not just Mm -hmm. any engineer can start doing this so there's certainly a training aspect involved And I think that there's some kind of compromise where they can be a little bit less billable as long as that less billable time is good, productive time. Mm -hmm. So your job as an engineering firm or manager or executive is to figure out how that time becomes valuable. And I think, you know, like Mindy was saying, having these conversations with marketing, having these meetings, building up the relationships just in between the marketing engineering professionals can be very valuable.
4: Yeah, it's very important to have those regular conversations, whether it's a formal marketing meeting or just... One-on-one conversations and individual coaching about how it works, um, and and there can also be formal trainings. I sure. know we, mm-hmm. Mindy and I have both, uh, as in-house marketing professionals, have done lunch and learns on, you know, how do you how do you cold call somebody? How do you engage at a, a networking mm-hmm. event? What do you do after you get back and you follow up? Like give me their business cards we'll scan it in <laughs> we'll send them an email but you know just making sure that people have the tools that they need to do it as we mentioned earlier today in our session people don't realize who they know either so the more they're aware of how it all works and how everything's connected they might say oh my son plays little league with the head of facilities at the university we're trying mm-hmm. to do work with well, i had no idea and then giving them the tools to talk to that person outside of the context of Little League and to make that consultative sales thing because engineers are scared of sales as well. Can't so call making it, sales.
3: it <laughs> yeah. you know make it
4: creating a right. comfort level and making sure that you know some people are gonna be more comfortable giving a presentation or maybe they're more comfortable writing a paper for journal, a technical paper. journal. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the other guys that are able to switch gears and go out, and take somebody to lunch and do some networking. And so you embrace those different aspects of everybody's personality
5: to help keep it moving forward. That's a great point. I think you really have to play to the strengths of the individual and their comfort level. What I would do also to get people kind of dip their toes a little bit in the networking and business development pool is I would always say, hey, look, if let's go meet with this client. I'm going to come with you because I know the whole firm. Right. But we're going to talk maybe about what you're doing because this particular client has an issue. Maybe it's a stormwater management issue or a drainage issue. But I'm going to go with you because I want them to know everything we do. But I also want to have my technical person there who can really start giving them some solutions and build a rapport and they know that the client now feels comfortable enough with this person that they can pick up the phone and call them when they need them. And that's part of just relationship building one-on-one.
1: Right. And that's that synergy that we talked about a little bit is having both of you there Mm -hmm. provides the client with two different aspects of what you do, right? And we're
5: always a great resource. Marketing is a great resource to have as a third-party type of person. Like, hey, who can help me here? What do you know about this? And... Marketing is truly valuable more so than ever in this day and age in our industry.
1: I think also, like, from the marketing side of it, I'm sure, like, if you're going to a dinner or something and you could have the technical person with you, too, mm-hmm. from the technical aspect, is probably helpful, I would think, too, right? Mm-hmm. If someone's talking about a new project that's coming up and you might be like, well, I, "What? what does this mean or what does mm-hmm. this part of it mean? So I think there's a lot of value for each other, you know? that's true,
4: yeah. And there's been some studies done that, you know, end user clients really want to talk to the the technical expert on what's going on, because mm-hmm. they do have an issue, they do have things that they want to talk about that marketing knows enough to be dangerous on, they right. can't really tell you, oh yeah, this needs to be graded to this and slope, to. and yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. no. And mm-hmm. all, likewise, you don't want to be writing proposals right. or, or creating new website content, so you know that's why we do, right. we value what we do, and, and, and we value what the engineers do, so being able to be a, a team in terms of how you present to the client is really mm-hmm. good. One thing about the marketing profession in
5: this industry, it's changed so rapidly over the the last few years and you have to be on touch, on point with everything and you're such part scientist, part creative, you know, person, you're mirroring right and left brain now because we have to have research and strategy to back up our creative efforts and our promotional efforts and how we sell the firm. So it's really exciting time to be a marketing professional in this industry.
1: Great. All right. Well, thank you, Carrie Ann and Mindy, for some time here today. And if you're an engineer, this is your kind of call not to be afraid of marketing or, you know, worried that marketing is so much different than engineering. There's avenues to work together and it can be very valuable for you and your firm if you can work together in a good relationship. And you can talk to your CEOs, your executives about I do want to be a little bit less billable, but I also have a plan for how that non-billable time is going to be productive, and you can come up with some kind of a plan. So we will certainly link to Mindy and Karian's websites or how we can get in touch with you in the show notes for this show, so you can check out what they're doing. And again, thanks for spending some time with us after just speaking in a session. I know that's probably tiring, so thank you. We're good. Thank Thank you. you. Anthony Fasano with the engineering career coach here at the SAMI JetSea Conference in Phoenix. And I'm here sitting in a 1949 Hudson with Dan McNichol. And uh, I got to interview Dan before the conference. We did an interview. It was on the SAMI website. And we also put it on the Civil Engineering Podcast. But now Dan gave his talk, went over very well. A lot of great photos of his trip across the country, but I'll let him talk a little bit. Dan, for those that may not have heard the other interview, don't know who you are,
6: why don't you tell us a little bit about your project? My name is Dan McNichol. I'm an author. I've been writing about infrastructure and mega projects for 17 years on my own. I've worked in the White House, worked on big projects like the Big Dig, San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, Rebuild. And it's just a work, and labor of love, it's fascinating to me, it's exciting because these products are so impactful. And on this occasion, in this car, I took advocacy as a mission and drove around the nation. I've done 20,000 miles in this 1949 Hudson to say America's infrastructure looks like my original Detroit lead sled. That America's infrastructure is as old, rusty and energy defunct as this car. And for those who can't see it, it's rusty, it's aged, it has patina. And I don't think cars are really meant to have patina. A lot of rust, a lot of agingness. And the systems are, are wonky, like a lot of our major critical infrastructure systems seem to be.
1: So wherever you're listening to this, whether it's through Sammy or through one of our podcasts, we'll make sure that the pictures of the car are there as well, because you do have to see the pictures. It says a lot about it. One thing, Dan, that I wanted to ask you about, we talked a lot about your trip in the previous interview, but one thing I didn't really get to ask you about is, this is something obviously you're passionate about. You don't drive a 1949 car across the country for six months, unless you're passionate about the mission behind it. I mean, you're sacrificing a part of your life, right? Like you're going out for six months, you're kind of leaving everything behind. And you have to kind of focus on this mission, and I think it parallels to a lot of the engineers that are here today or in the military. They get deployed, right? They leave a lot behind. Yet they got to focus on their mission. That's like, point. how did you get through six months of that?
6: That was hard, harder than I thought. I mean, it's exciting, and, it, and it's, it looks exciting, and it is exciting, but it's also painful. It's hard. You're moving this piece of junk, and I love this car, but it's four thousand pounds of steel with not even a hundred horsepower. It's underpowered. You're constantly challenged with maintaining the car. And that's what is analogous to America's infrastructure. This car loses five minutes on its dashboard clock every day. Uh, We lose a lot more because of these old systems. And infrastructure is about quality of life. It's about holding up institutions. It's about easing the burdens as we try to make a living and enjoy our lives. And without the right systems, we all suffer and it's struck me after driving this car how much bad infrastructure if this car is bad infrastructure impacts your health your waistline increases your blood pressure goes up your cholesterol levels rise you you are a miserable person when you come out of hours of stop and go traffic uh, these all have direct impacts on the quality of your life on your health and that to me is maybe the more most powerful message i've come away with
1: yeah that is interesting i mean i think as an engineer sometimes you're seeing the projects you're seeing the technical things you see some of the failures you know you don't even think it through of all the consequences we talked about this a little bit yesterday like the ripple effect cuz the traffic you get home late then you eat bad then you're upset and right it's one thing exactly. after the next and
6: exactly it's a ripple effect it's a it's a breaking down and the the new infrastructure that we will have will look a lot different and th- this is maybe a wonderful opportunity to not rebuild the same old systems but to build something remarkably different remarkably more appropriate that does make life exciting and fun and profitable because we depend on on wealth for a better life it's a fact that people who earn more money have less stress and live longer lives Uh, if we're able to impact the world and be the, the police of a safer cleaner more honest world Uh, we're going to have to be a wealthy nation to do that and that wealth will come from economic prosperity that always depends on good systems and good infrastructure.
1: How did you feel yesterday on stage in front of this type of audience where there's a lot of military engineers and you know very infrastructure heavy audience how did you feel about that?
6: You know I I, I spent an extra amount of time preparing for this group and it it demanded that because to stand there that's a great question Anthony to be standing there in front of a room of maybe a 1,000 people, and to know the responsibilities they all have Uh, to work, working together often on big projects. But to have that kind of firepower in a room made me say to myself before I took the stage, you better have your message, you better have a very clear ask at the end. And it came from a lot of consternation, a lot of angst about, am I going to do it right? I believe the message was well received because of the preparation, but I think more importantly because there's just a natural alignment here. I'm trying to put out a good word about what these people are doing, and it's so rarely advocated for. We have a pink ribbon for breast cancer. We do not have a ribbon for, for infrastructure. And it's uncomfortable to ask that people care about their infrastructure when they are being asked to care about so many other notable, needy causes. So it's, it's a delicate balance. But I feel like with a group like this, Anthony, that I get support where I need it. I hope I'm giving them the support that they can benefit from. And that's just called partnership. That's just called collaboration and teamwork.
1: I think it's great. We even talked to an engineer today who we were kind of joking around with saying that, you know, engineers can't often get that message out there about how important what they work on is. So it's great to have someone like you that can do it, whether it's driving a 1949 Hudson around the country or whatever it is. It's getting the word out there and, like, waving the flag and saying, you better look at this because it's got a lot of consequences beyond a couple of cracks in the pavement. So
6: We're waiting in my car right now for the three-star general who's in charge of the entire United States Army Corps of Engineers. He's going to come by because he wants to say something. I'm nervous about what, what is it that he's going to either ask or want or suggest, but I'm really much more excited than nervous about what a partnership, what, what a possible partner. Uh, and half of the, the Army Corps' responsibilities are military and half the responsibilities are public. And I think it's fascinating to be talking to a man who's got both responsibilities.
1: So is this the first time you've been sitting in a 1949 Hudson waiting for a three-star general? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, thanks to Dan McNichol again for just spending a few minutes here. It's, it's a thrill to actually get to spend some time in the actual Hudson and to see his talk yesterday. And if you are listening to this, you got to check out what he's doing. DanMcNickel.com is your website. It's got a lot of photos and all the books and all of Dan's information on there. And best of luck with everything, Dan.
6: Well, Anthony, thank you. Thank you and Betty. What you guys are doing is so important, and thanks for doing it.
1: Civil Engineering
0: Podcast.
6: Civil Engineering Podcast.
1: All right, I hope you enjoyed the interviews from the 2016 SAMI Joint Engineer Training Conference and Expo. I enjoyed being out here in Phoenix to do them. And please let us know any topics you want us to cover on the Civil Engineering Podcast. You just have to email myself, anthony at engineeringcareercoach.com or chris at com. We're definitely looking for more topics of interest on the Civil Engineering Podcast and would love to hear from you. I'd like to just recognize our sponsor for this episode as we close it out. Our sponsor is PPI engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FE or PE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. I personally used PPI's materials to pass my exams and I recently had a chance to demo their civil FE and PE review courses. It's why I feel so confident recommending PPI. For those of you planning to take the next step in your engineering career, PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use the promo code CIVIL at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's ppi2pass.com the number two, pass.com, and use the promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors.